Cheryl Baranak, CEO of Clearfield. Uh, thank you for being on the Light Reading Podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. First of all, uh, so Clearfield is in fiber protection and management. And um, one of the, I think, the key things that our audience would be interested in knowing if they're not already familiar with your company is how you help network operators do success-based fiber deployment. Mm -hmm. It's not one of those build it and they will come type scenarios. Can you describe quickly sort of how that uh, how that works, uh, uh, what, what, what the product is? Well, when we started the company, we introduced a technology called the Clearview Cassette. Mm -hmm. And the Clearview Cassette is 12 ports of in integrated fiber management, and it's a modular piece of equipment so that no matter how many that um, that you need, you can build as many, you can use that product line as many as you as many times as you might want. Okay. To to better explain, if you're in a central office, you're going to use a panel. Mm -hmm. If you're in an outside plant, you're going to use a cabinet. If you're you know in a MDU, you might use a wall box. With Clearfield, you have the identical architecture for all of those places. You use the Clearview cassette as many times as you need 12 ports. So whether if you need 144, you use 12 of them. Right. If you need 864, it's a whole lot more cassettes. The, um, but it's exactly the same product. Um, and you can increase or scale the, um, your individual device without any um, extra cost. So that at the end, you know, th it's, there's no incremental cost or any waste in regard to the way it's being deployed. And you're competing against, like, what's the methodology that you're competing against most often in the market now? The, um, so our competitors would typically offer a, what's called a fixed bulkhead. Okay. And a fixed bulkhead has a device where it's all pre-configured. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you need 48 ports, you know, and, um, and the, all they offer is a 96-port uh, panel, the, um, you're going to have, you know, 50% waste. Okay. The, um, uh, what we like to do, the other way to look at it as well is, you know, they'll offer, if you need 96 ports and uh, and the competitor offers the 96 ports, great. Yeah. But if you don't need those other 48 ports until two years from now, you've given them their, your money when you right. could use that money for something else. And so, you know, we thought a success-based deployment model was really about, you know, we were a small company when we started. We knew that success-based allowed us to be able to have a cash flow model that really worked for, for smaller companies. But, you know, some, year, some years ago when Google Fiber decided to use our technology for the deployment in Kansas City, we knew it wasn't about just small companies. We knew it was about, you know, those pioneers who are looking at fiber differently. That's what woke me up to um, Clearfield as a company anyway, was, <laughs> was the, Google, the Google Fiber uh, interest. Um, so now you've got like, uh, I think your last investment call, you said you had a trailing 12 month revenue uh, in excess of a hundred million. That's correct. Uh, I think it was like a hundred. Was a, yeah. So I think the uh, we passed the hundred million threshold at the, uh, at the end of calendar year, you know, 2020. We were up 10 percent last year. The um, for the first nine months of our of our cal of our fiscal year, which ended on June 30th, we announced our numbers last week, and we're up 45 percent um, over last year. And what is also interesting that that I, I think our audience would be interested in knowing is that this is not coming from the tier ones, that, like, that most of your business comes from, uh, you call it, in the presentation you describe them as communities, but these are 
tier twos, tier threes, and who else is in that group? Right. right. It's you know we started first with what we would call tier threes. That's where we, how we started the business. The yeah, and so these were companies like Paul Bunyan Telephone in Minnesota, or Vermont Telephone, or SureWest Communications um, in Sacramento. Yeah. The um, over the years we have expanded to the tier twos, the frontiers, the wind streams, but also the utilities, the co-ops, the um, the the new developers. You know, really individuals who were looking at service communities who were you know not having their needs met by the typical tier one you know, incumbent providers and we you know about 70% of our business is what we call community broadband and, and and I think what's important about that is those decisions are being made at the community level and they're being and they're benefiting those environments you know at the community level rather than by a national decision and that's really what's exciting I think right now in in broadband is that people are taking ownership over their internet services and not wait, taking a back seat and waiting for someone else to do it for them. Yeah, yeah they kind of, it, it seems like they have to because the, the incumbents are interested in, I don't know if the right, if redlining is the right term, but it's, it, you know, they're, they're interested in deploying to a handful of profitable communities and a handful of zip codes and a handful of cities. And that just leaves out everybody else. Exactly. You know, and I, and I don't, um, you know, I, I don't sit here and judge because those are for-profit companies. They're yeah. public companies, sure. and it's their job to not only service their um, their subscribers and customers, but also their shareholders. Right. And so, um, those are reasonable decisions. But it doesn't mean that the, they're the only provider that and our only option. And so, uh, we you know focus the organization on, on making sure we could build a sales channel and a support channel that met the needs of those community providers, um, so that many of them might be new to fiber, the, um, and they're going to need an extra little hand held or a little bit of step up. And so we offer things like smart guys. I know these are pioneers in the fiber world who are there for first installs. Mm. Um, you know, we, they're men and women, but I call them guys. Yeah. Uh, we offer um, Clearfield College. That seems so very Minnesota of you. I <laughs> see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all guys along the way. The, um, although this morning here at the conference, the, you know, after the first presentation, and you know, it was two hours, and everyone was let go for you know a ten minute break, and it was right. like the first time like ever where you're like, you like know, the women's bathroom was like nobody in it, and the guys were still in line. <laughs> Yeah, the, you, you know you're at a telecom conference uh, if that happened. And hopefully we can, you know, hopefully those ratios will adjust in the next, uh, you know, in the near term. We were, I was just talking to uh, Gary Bolton about, you know, training programs to just get more people interested in, you know, fiber deployment and working in the telecom space general. In general, I'm a real advocate for for women in technology because um, it's a it's a world in which. Um, you can prove your worth, you yeah. know, very quickly. You know, it's it's not abstract. It's pretty black and white, um, and um, and it, you don't necessarily have to be an engineer. Right. Um, and so I think it is going to be a very profitable place for young men and women to be able to have uh, to start a really good career path. I I, I tend to agree. I think um, you know as we're looking at at you know covering the digital divide and growing the fiber base that's out there, what are the big near-term catalysts that you're sort of concentrating on? Because you have to, you know, even though, you know, most of uh, Clearfield's revenue comes from, you know, community fiber providers, you do sell to everyone. 
and everyone who's who's in the space. So so I would I would think you'd kind of be looking across the spectrum to sort of see what the the big the big catalysts are. Is it all coming from you know are the big catalysts in the U.S. coming from government or is it is is the is there anything else I'm missing? Mm -hmm. okay. Well, you know the the. Certainly, right now there's a phenomenal amount of, of funding, and we're kind of we've heard it today talking about it as being a once in a generation opportunity, the um, for the amount of new funding that's going to come in for underserved and unserved markets. The, um, but we're also seeing that um, people aren't being dependent upon about waiting for your grant. The, um, that there's going to be parts of your serving area that you may receive a grant for, but probably not all of it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you can get a heads up by getting yourself started and taking the ownership to, you know, to building a network um, or to fiberize the network you already have, the, um, regardless of the amount of assistance you might get from federal or state subsidies. And so our business to date um, has been really about a demand-based environment where, I mean, even during COVID, we grew 10% because we're seeing that this is no longer a choice. The, um, the take rates have, um, have always been high for fiber. Um, they've been, you know, uh, over the course of the Google days, we found it was, you know, around 40%. Today, I estimate, I'm, I'm guessing next year we're going to see numbers, you know, close to 60%. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what I, has been happening in our, in our customer base is, um, I will say in a, in a positive way, a land grab. Okay. Them that you know we need to have service providers who come out and once once they get that customer and they get a sixty percent take rate in their networks, you know fiber customers stick, mm -hmm. and so yeah. really encourage um, you know service providers to you know to get started to get their plans in place, um, and you know and to learn from others so that they can get out there as quickly as possible. That makes sense. Um, does does five G uh, afford? a company like yours an opportunity or how do, how do you sort of, I mean, I know that people are building more fiber to, um, to support their 5G infrastructure. Does, do, do you have a product or sort of a strategy for, for dovetailing your business to do that or is it all uh, fiber to the business, fiber to the home base? Yeah. No, uh, we have several announced products that were designed for 5G deployment. The, um, you know, one of them is the, the Street Smart Transition Box, which is a wireline to wireless convergence point. Um, was designed for companies like Verizon who have talked about a one fiber network. The, um, so that one network will support both wireline and wireless services, but there needed to be a handoff point. The, um, we also have a product called um, the Street Smart Fiber uh, Aerial Distribution Hub. So this is like that cabinet that sits at the end of your block, um, uh, but is kind of an eyesore. The uh, street furniture. This is now much smaller, and it actually uh, hangs from the aerial, not on the pole, but actually from the strand. Okay. And so it uh, does away with pole uh, restrictions, and uh, and it's really meant for out of service. Because you know, typically pole rights are going to be for in-network, right. and so this is going to would be deployed as an outer franchise solution. Huh. So uh, these are solutions that we brought to market over you know probably the 18 months before COVID. Okay. They um, they haven't taken off as strongly as we would have anticipated, but then 5G deployments have been slower than anticipated as well. Right. The, um, I think 5G is going to be an exciting thing for our community broadband customers mm -hmm. in that there's going to be you know, backhaul and front haul opportunities. Um, and they're going to probably need to take some of that same 
you know, once you put fiber in the ground, you can use it for fiber to the home, but you can also provide it for, you know, the servicing those antennas that are going to need to be every other light pole. So um, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, getting subscribers and resident residential services. But, you know, if a, a service provider can have enough forward thinking to make sure that they put enough fiber in their networks for future 5G revenue opportunities, I think they'll be well served. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, too, is that a lot of the 5G, the promise of 5G or a lot of that deployment was predicated on millimeter wave and that kind of, um, you know, really cl close, really high throughput radios, which that is either taking a long time or it's been put off, you know, in favor of mid-band and other, other spectrum deployment, but it's still out there. Mm -hmm. There's still, like you said, there's still an opportunity coming down the road for it, so. It's just, I think, going to be at a different rate than yeah. many of us had planned for. And uh, there's a, um, a graph, I forgot the name of the research firm, but it, um, it talks about the 5G network and it's like a 20-year plan, mm -hmm. but it's got this long kind of almost like nose of an elephant mm -hmm. and then it ramps up real high and so always calls the trunk before the elephant. There and so I think this elephant's got a pretty long trunk. It's <laughs> <laughs> a creative way to look at it. Um, in your investor presentation, this, this, this showed up as a, as a slide, and I don't recall what the commentary was around it. It was one crew, one truck, one day. Mm -hmm. It's talking about fiber deployment, I assume. Right. Um, what's, what, what's, what's the, uh, the, the story around that? The, um, so, um, well, so it goes back to our concept that uh, we wanted to design a product line that reduced labor and that you know required less skilled labor, okay. and so what we did is we put together a, a scenario, uh, scenario. One of the uh, in order to win business, the other one to look at you know what did this mean not just for labor costs but for throughput in regard to you know how quickly could you move from one neighborhood to the next, and so the technologies that we offered eliminated splicing, okay. the um, both that both within the cabinets and the terminals as well as at the home. And as a result, um, we were able to have you know one truck, one crew, um, and we were able to, in a very short period of time, turn up that service. So um, I think service providers um, you know, really, not only do what they want to make sure they get their take rates there, but they want to make sure that they get their subscribers online and start paying money. Um, and um, the faster you can turn up service, the faster you're going to be able to you know, either increase the revenue per that subscriber or at least maintain it. How do you, um, uh, that makes sense. How, how do you, uh, you know, being a public company CEO these days has got to be, um, I don't know, challenging. You're always under the microscope for mm -hmm. this, that, or the other. Uh, and your company especially has kind of risen above or, or you know, kind of landed on a lot of people's radar in the last, <laughs> let's say, you know, last year or so, especially right. when, when, uh, the financial story sort of got out there a bit more. Um, has that changed anything about the way you run the company or your leadership style or anything like that? That it, you know, that added level of visibility. Uh, clearly, you're getting asked to do more speaking engagements, you're showing up on podcasts left and right. <laughs> What's the downside yeah. of all that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, so I've. 
I've been the CEO of Clearfield um, for the last 13 years. Mm -hmm. And um, when when I started, you know, the company was um, was already public. We were the shell of there was a public company shell that um, you know there was a, a, a the company had gone public during the dot com explosion, right? Okay. And so we were the remnants of what was left over. And so when we started, um, our stock was trading at 97 cents. Um, we had a market cap of $10 million, and we had the idea of the Clearview cassette. Mm -hmm. But even at that stage, you know, they, um, they, they would publish my salary once a month in, or once a year, excuse me, in the local paper and, and talk about my total comp, and my kids were little. And, you know, today, you know, the, the company is worth almost $600 million, mm -hmm. and we've created um, a lot of value for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but that hasn't changed the fact that you know I'm just as excited about you know my new grandson as I am about you know being able to to service my customers and and today you know we initially I had 30 employees you know today including my manufacturing staff you know we're close to 600 wow. and uh, those are a lot of families that depend upon us mm -hmm. um, but more importantly uh, we ship almost 20 million ports of fiber a year. And so at the end of the day, we built this company to, to make sure that we could provide the lifestyle that better broadband provides. Mm -hmm. And so effectively, it just means we're one big community. And uh, uh, when we were little, um, people would talk about us as a family. And I said, nope, we are not a family. Families are stuck with each other. Mm -hmm. um, inf instead, we are a community. And as a community, we, we choose to work alongside each other. Um, and I think it's been that choice and that energy uh, which has made you know Clearfield as strong as it is today. How how um, how challenging has it been to you know to find people uh, you know to delegate to and to you know kind of identify the right people to help you grow the company you know at every at every stage because that's kind of a you know a, a thing is realizing uh, clearly you've realized it's not. It's not all coming from one person, but you, you've been pretty successful at maintaining stability throughout the, the, the ascension, which has been really interesting. Yeah, we've never lost money. Right. Um, so we have, um, I took great pride in the fact that um, we were a small cap public company and that I was not going to raise money and I wasn't going to lose money. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started with $4 million in the bank, but no debt, but we never raised any additional capital. We've never done any other kind of raises. Um, and so it was important for me that we own the company in the most positive way possible. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think as we, as we go into this you know, next stage, it was important for us to look at not just the skill level of the people we brought in, but the values that they provided. And so when I started the company, um, my partner, Johnny Hill, and I, who's our chief operating officer, uh, we were um, in, on an airplane and uh, you know, traditionally you would go home and you'd have focus groups and you'd write your mission statement and you'd write your values. And uh, we wrote six values on a piece of paper as to what described us, you know, and the first one was to listen. Um, and then we talked about collaboration. Um, but then the important part was to celebrate. 
And so as we have hired new personnel, we have made sure that in any interview that they were good listeners because that's how we're better than other people is that we don't build product for people that we think they need. We listen to their requirements and then um, you know, add in our technical competency and excellence to being the product that they require. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, you celebrate enough so you can always have a good time and have, have fun and it keeps us motivated to do more. Excellent. All right, Cheryl Baranek, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule and this incredibly uh, crowded conference to uh, spend some time with us. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a lot of fun.